So Genesis chapter 33, last week uh, we looked at Genesis chapter 32, and you might recall in that chapter, um, Jacob, he wrestles with a man. You know, the Lord is wrestling with Jacob, and they wrestled all night. You know, the Lord's just trying to get Jacob to surrender, and Jacob, you know, he's not going to break. And the Lord touches his hip, dislocates it, but in, even in the pain of a dislocated hip, he's just hanging on, He's just looking for a blessing. He's not going to give up until the Lord blesses him. And after that encounter, Jacob, he was a broken man. And uh, he was a changed man, which is indicated by the Lord giving him that new name. He's no longer going to be Jacob, dirty, rotten, low-life, conniving thief. But now he's going to be called Israel, governed by God. And we pick it up in uh, Genesis 33, verse 1. It says, Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. And Jacob has again, what happens is he just, he's forgotten the promises of God. He's forgotten the blessings that God has bestowed upon him. And when he changed his name to governed by God, when he changed his name to Israel, and it says, now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked. There was Esau coming and with him 400 men. Jacob, he's walking by sight. He sees the circumstances. He forgets those promises and he reverts to his old nature. And it's one thing to receive. And this is something, you know, uh, we just have to understand. You know, it's one thing to receive blessings from the Lord during those mountaintop experiences I mean, you've been to a retreat when God has just blessed, he's spoken, he's just revealed his heart to you in a, in a beautiful way. But it's one thing when you receive those blessings on that mountaintop experience, and it's another thing to translate those experiences into everyday life down in the valley. And, you know, understanding that needs to cause our minds to just, just to focus on how tightly we need to hold on to it those promises when God gives them to us. And we need to be praying them into our lives. Otherwise, we are just going to forget them when we're faced with a difficult circumstances. We need to remind ourselves of them frequently so we don't lose sight of them and revert to our old ways like Jacob does. And it continues on. It says, so what he does in his scheming Jacob way, he divided the children among Leah Rachel and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children up front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. So you can tell who was closest to Jacob's heart. Here he puts Rachel and Joseph last. You know, I guess at the very least, one good thing about Jacob is you always knew where you stood with him. I mean, he didn't really candy coat it. You know, I mean, poor Bilhah and Zilpah, man, uh, they're up front. You know, but it's just another sign of this dysfunctional family. In verse 3, it says, Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So Jacob goes to Esau first. And this is a display of change. This is an indication of change that has occurred in Jacob's life, I think. Because before wrestling with the Lord, you know, and it had this situation come upon him, he would have put everybody else in front of him just in an effort to uh, save his skin. 
And it says he bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came to, near to his brother. So what Jacob does here, he bows himself before Esau. Then he raises up. I mean, he bows. He raises up. He takes a couple steps. He bows again before Esau. He does this seven times. And it's a display. It's a sign of submission. And it's a sign of honor. He wants uh, Esau, his elder brother, to uh, know that he respects him and he honors him. You know, he's showing profound respect to Esau, his elder brother. And again, he wants Esau to know that he's no threat to, to uh, him. Jacob, you know, he doesn't want anything from Esau. So he bows himself. In verse 4, I wish I was there to see this. But Esau ran. You know what? I, mean, I wonder what Jacob thought when he saw Esau running towards him. I mean, I'm sure he was terrified. You know, remember Esau, Esau was a man's man. He was a hunter. He was a man of the field. He was a tough guy, all hairy like Chewbacca. And uh, Jacob, he was a mild-mannered man. And in my mind, you know, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of who it would be. But, you know, because I'm older, I'd say Don Knotts. I mean, I can see Don Knotts adopting this, like, karate pose, you know, trying to, trying to show, like, Esau, like, hey, don't mess with me, man. You know, I'm bad. <laughs> you know, I just, he knows nothing about martial arts, but he's doing anything to try to get, um, to intimidate <laughs> Esau. And it says, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. When Esau saw Jacob last, he swore he was going to kill him. When Esau heads out to meet Jacob with 400 men, you know, there's no doubt what he's planning on doing. He's planning on doing harm to Jacob. He's planning on killing him. Now we see him, he runs to Jacob, not to hurt him, but in love to embrace him. Esau hugs Jacob. And I can just imagine, I mean, this big burly man hugging this little mild manner man, and he hugs him, and he kind of picks him up. You know, uh, when I was working, I'll, uh, I'll never forget, I was working with the college of ministry. And uh, one of the, the tight ends for the football team, OSU football team, Joe Kuykendall, he gave me a hug at one of, you know, the uh, Bible studies. And my head just buried into his chest. He was a big guy. I think I'm a big guy. But he gave me a hug and he lifted me up. My feet are just kind of dangling there. You know, it's just like I can, it, was just, it just felt so great to be in the arms of just a big, strong man. I mean, I don't know if that sounds weird or what, but uh, you know what I mean? It was just, I, I don't experience that very often. You know, nobody hugs me and my head is buried into their chest. Nobody picks me up. And in, in, a, in an embrace, and my feet just dangle there. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you ladies know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, thank you, Tina. <laughs> and I get myself in so much trouble. But he lifts him off the ground, he hugs him, and he kisses Jacob. You know? And it says that Jacob and Esau, it says that they both cried. You know, Esau just seeing his brother it was overwhelming. He cried, and, and I imagine Jacob's crying just from relief because Esau doesn't want to kill him, you know. And uh, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what happened between the time that Esau left his camp and now? 
Jacob had been praying. That's what happened. Jacob had been praying. And it was prayer that changed Esau's heart from the time he left his place to the time he sees, sees Jacob. Prayer has changed his heart. And this is a biblical example of how powerful prayer is. Prayer can change even the hardest heart. And I hope each one of us here tonight, everybody watching online, everybody in our body, I hope that we allow that truth to sink down into our hearts and become part of who we are. Sometimes I think as Christians, you know, we don't often believe the very things we're praying for. You know, sometimes I think, you know, there are often times where, you know, prayers, they pass our lips and there's no faith behind that prayer. And we don't even, we don't even expect God to answer it, really. We're just saying it. It's just we're going through emotion. But Jacob prayed. He prayed from desperation. He prayed pleading with the Lord, knowing that it was only the Lord that could intervene. Jacob could do nothing else. So you know what? He is that type of guy who prayed, but he prayed with sincerity. Prayer changes the hearts of men. That's true. You know what? I'm a testimony of that truth. I've told you guys before how Tina prayed for me. She hadn't, you know, she's a Christian, and she hadn't uh, spoke to anybody about the Lord in some period of time. So, you know, she said, you know, I'm going to pray for somebody and see what God will do. Who's the biggest sinner I can think of? Gary Barrow. Just that fast. And she prayed for me. And she prayed for me for an entire year. And unbeknownst to me, I'll tell you what, at that time, that year was like the best year of my life. But you know, God was doing a work. God was doing a work. He was preparing me for a, a work. Um, it was during that time I lived in Mammoth. I skied every day. I partied every day. I was collecting the unemployment. It was great, man. I was living the life, you know? And um, then I came back to Mammoth. I took a trip to Southern California, and I came back, and it was like God pulled the rug out from underneath me because when I got back, it was, it was one of the coldest winters ever on record. And when I got back to our cabin, my roommate was gone, and all my stuff was gone. And I was, like, desperately sick. I just happened to be really, really sick when I got there, and I suffered through the night, and, uh, you know, I called my sister. It's, it's when I say I kind of snapped, I went crazy, and I called my sister, and I said, hey, you know what, would you pray for me? My sister said, oh, yes, of course I'd pray for you, Gary. Dear Lord, not now, okay? Just wait a second. Okay, pray, <laughs> and I hung up, and, you know, she prayed for me, you know, and, and I tell you what, uh, after that, I couldn't live where I was living anymore because, you know, there was no gas, there was no water, it was terrible. And so I, I met somebody and I moved into their condo. I don't even know where it was, uh, but I had a friend that visited me. And we skied uh, that weekend, and after we skied, he said, hey, you know, Gary, I'm moving from my house. It's right across the street from PCH, right there, Huntington Beach. I'm just one block from the beach. I'm, I'm moving out. You know what you could do is you could move in and you could surf all day. I'm like, oh yeah. So I packed everything. I threw everything in my car, drove down to Southern California, and on the way my car broke down. And it took everything I had, $180, to get my car to Southern California, and I'm broke. 
I moved in with uh, some friends of mine. I spent a lot of time at the beach. But during these events, you know, it was just God was working in my heart. And then I connected with Tina somehow. I saw her, and, and uh, she started telling me that God loved me, that Jesus loved me. And I tell you what, it was just a work that God was doing in my heart. The fact that somebody loved me, that was music to my ears. And I tell you, it's exactly what I needed to hear because, you know, at that time in my life, I was completely alone. And the idea that anybody loved me was completely foreign. I mean, I don't think anybody cared for me. Of course, you know, people care for you. You don't know it. But I prayed hearing that message that God loved me and he wanted to forgive me of my sins. He didn't want me to do anything. He didn't want me to change anything. He just wanted me to let him love me. And I got on my knees one night after hearing that and just said, Lord, if it's true, if you show me, I'll give you my life. And uh, you know what? He showed me. I gave him my life, you know. Had the Lord not intervened, had I was on my way to prison. I was on my way to, you know, a, a terrible uh, <laughs> end of, of life through drug and alcohol abuse, you know. But I received the Lord as my Savior. It was prayers of Tina. It was prayers of other people that it just changed my life. And you know, the message is we can't give up on people that aren't walking with the Lord. People that we know, we need to be praying for them. And we can't give up on those people we love that aren't walking with the Lord. We need to pray. God will move. You know, their final chapters aren't written in life. God will intervene. And you may think that they'll never come to the Lord. But no one ever thought I would come to the Lord. You may think that, you know what, God is done with those people. But that's what people thought about me. I can remember being at Calvary Costa Mesa uh, one, one Thursday night, and I'm on one end of a foyer, and I see one of my friends uh, on the other end of the foyer, and our eyes lock, and we both said simultaneously, no way, you're a Christian? <laughs> it, was, it was neat. You know what? Nobody ever would have guessed I would ever be a missionary or a pastor teaching the Bible now for 25 years. Nobody would have ever guessed that. You know, I was in, we were in Hungary 2004. We get a phone call late at, late at night, actually early in the morning, and they said, you want to see your dad alive? You better come now. And, you know, what do you do? You're a missionary. We don't have any money, you know? God provided, and we went. And, um, you know, I got to spend the last month and a half of my dad's life sleeping on the floor next to him. So when he got up at the middle of the night, I was there. And sometimes my dad was, you know, totally out of it, waking up. Dad, what are you doing? There's a plane crash over there. I need to help. Well, hey, the first responders, emergency crews will take care of them. Go back to sleep. And other times he was sharp as a tack. I was telling Sandy, I think it was the other day, how my dad... I was talking to him. He smoked all his life. And I said, Dad, just think of how much money you would have saved had you never smoked. And he looked at me and he said, just think of how much money you would have saved if you never smoked. I said, Dad, I don't smoke. How much money have you saved? <laughs> I mean, how do you argue with that? <laughs> I better take up smoking. That's why. No. <laughs> But you know what? One day after that, 
my dad, he came in. I took him out for a smoke. You know, you're dying of cancer. It's not time to quit smoking. And I took, I brought him in. And, uh, you know, I talked to him outside about the Lord, and he didn't want to hear anything about it. But then as I brought him in, maybe 15 minutes later, he asked me to pray with him to receive the Lord. And I called Tina over, and we prayed. And that was the last day. It was uh, October 31st, 2004. That was the last day my dad was able to speak. It was the last day he got out of bed. Three weeks later, he uh, died. And uh, before we left Hungary, the Lord told me that I was going to do my dad's funeral. And when I got there, my mom, uh, they had already picked another pastor to do the funeral. So I thought, okay, well, I've just missed it. And... Um, that pastor never responded back to my mom, so she asked me if I would do the funeral. I said, you know, Mom, I only have one message, <laughs> and it's the cross, and she said, preach it. And so, you know, I did my dad's funeral. It was one of the highlights of ministry for me. But after the funeral, the Lord spoke to my heart, and he said, Gary, all those prayers, they weren't wasted. And you know what? I prayed for my dad for a lot of years, and there were times where I just thought I was wasting my time. He's never going to respond. This is just a complete waste of time. And God said, Gary, I, I heard those prayers. And he moved, and he changed my dad's heart. And I tell you what, God encourages us to pray because he hears prayers, because he answers prayers, because he moves on behalf of the prayers of his saints. Don't give up. Don't give up on people. You know, Corey Ten Boom, she said, when a Christian shuns fellowship with other Christians, the devil smiles. When he, when he stops studying the Bible, the devil laughs. When he stops praying, the devil shouts for joy. And that, I think, is reality. You've heard the old saying that Satan trembles when the weakest saint goes to their knees. I believe it's true. Well, verse 5 says, and he lifted his eyes and saw the woman and children and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. How true that is when you look back on how dark this family's history was. At this point, Jacob has 11 sons. He has a daughter. And Psalm 127.3 tells us that children, they're a reward. They're a blessing from the Lord. Tina and I were so blessed with the kids that God has given us. Uh, you know, he's given us three of the best kids you'll ever meet. And I'm so excited that, that uh, this body has a chance to get to know Brian and Austin. I mean, they're great men. I love these guys. They're so, they put me to shame as far as what men are supposed to be like. They're good men. And my daughter, she's just such a, our daughter, she's just such a, a, a beautiful woman, just everything about her. She just has such a beautiful nature. Our son-in-law, he's pretty good too. But God says, or, but Jacob says that it was God's grace that, 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 uh, that these kids, it was a sign of God's grace on his life. And it's true. Jacob didn't deserve kids. Rachel didn't deserve kids. Leah didn't deserve kids. And yet God had been so gracious to them and Jacob is aware of it. And we should take special care to be aware of God's grace in our lives. And I think it's something personal. I think it's something that 
we do ourselves a disservice if we don't meditate, it, meditate on that daily, that we don't think about it daily, how great his grace has been upon us. Boy, you know what? What, what he did to save us. I mean, you think about the cross. And you know what? It just blows me away that not only would somebody love me, but somebody would suffer so much to love me. You know, the grace that he saved us, what he saved us from. I tell you what, where I would be without Christ, I shudder to think. You know what? Where we live, we live in a beautiful, beautiful area, Nevada, and you guys live in an even beautiful area. You know, you're in Truckee. But you know what? We live in America. We're free. We have freedoms. You know, they may be waning uh, now, but you know what? We still are freer than anybody else in the world. And I tell you, the grace that he's given us, the, the houses that he's given us, the families he's given us, his provision for us, it just blows me away. We should allow these things to move us deeply and to move us to thanksgiving. One thing that I'm so very aware of when I read through the Bible is God's repeated charge that his people have forgotten all that he's done for them. Look at Deuteronomy. Flip over in your Bible. Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 and 18. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Just kidding. What does it say? It says, verse 11, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full, and have built beautiful homes and dwell in them. And when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and, uh, and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt, from the, the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness, in which there were fiery serpents and scorpions, and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you uh, to do uh, you good in the end, that you say in your heart, beware that you don't forget when all these things are multiplied and you're doing well, you're, you're comfortable, then you say in your heart, my power, the might of my hand has gained, this, uh, gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth. I mean, you know what? The people of Israel, they forgot all that God had done for them. They, when they prospered, they pridefully attributed their wealth to themselves. And they forgot that it was God who saved them and who delivered them. It was God who provided for them miraculously. And this 
charges throughout the Bible not to forget. His people forgot. Psalm 78, 11, they forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. 78, 42, they did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the enemy. Psalm 106, 7, our father in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Psalm 106, 13, they soon forgot his works and they did not wait for his counsel. Psalm 106, 21, they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Hosea 13, 6, the Lord speaking says, when they had pasture, they were filled, they were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. And these, this charge goes on and on and on throughout the Bible. We need to recognize God's grace and God's goodness in our lives and never forget it lest we get to the place where our hearts are lifted up. And we just, yeah, you know, it's all about me. I did it. We should be people who give thanks daily for what God has done for each one of us. I mean, guys, look at your wife. What a blessing she is, isn't she? Women, look at your wife. Uh, uh, women, look at your husbands. I mean, we're kind of a blessing too, right? Yeah, right? Amen. Amen. Anybody else? <laughs> Hallelujah. Yeah, you know what? Oh, what a blessing. You know what? The man that I am because Tina's in my life. What a blessing. We can never forget it. Just be thankful to the Lord. And it's cool to see Jacob here. He recognizes all that he has was given to him by the Lord instead of seeing them as the fruit of his schemes, you know, the, the fruit of his efforts and his abilities. Verse 6, Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah, who came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterwards, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. And what you see here is Esau, he didn't, he didn't understand it. He didn't know what was going on. What was the wave after wave of animals? What was that all about? All these presents you're sending me. What was that all about? And remember, it was all about Jacob's schemings. Remember? That Jacob, his plan was to appease his brother. If you turn back to Genesis 32, verse 20, he tells us, For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I'll see his, his face. Perhaps he will accept me. And then right here to, to Esau, he confesses, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Jacob prayed, but again, he was that guy that... that he prayed, but then he would still take matters into his own hands. He prayed, and much like many believers, he's not sure that the Lord is going to answer him, answer his prayers. And so, you know what? He just, he just falls back on his old ways. He's walking by sight. He's not walking by faith. He's clearly depending on his schemes, his ability to find favor in the sight of Esau instead of trusting God. And you know what? God is worthy of all of our trust. He's ever so faithful and trustworthy. One of the things I do when I meet saints that have been 50, 60, 
70 years walking with the Lord, I ask them all, has God ever let you down? And you know, I, I say it, I know the answer, but I want to hear them say it. And you know what? Without exception, every elderly saint that I ask that question to, you know what? They get a big smile on their face and they say, no, Gary, he's always been faithful. You know, God is worthy of our trust. He is trustworthy. He's ever so faithful. Jacob's plan had zero effect on Esau. It was wasted effort. Because it was God that changed uh, Esau's heart. It was God that appeased Esau. It wasn't the 580 animals that he gave to Esau. Jacob could have given him 1,580 animals. It would have made no difference. It was God that makes the difference in, in the situation there. And it's God that will make a difference in our lives as we trust him and pray. It's the Lord that saves Jacob should have rested knowing uh, that in a similar manner, God had already shown himself able to protect him. God protected Jacob from Laban for the last 20 years, and he didn't bring Jacob, and this is what should be on all of our hearts, is he didn't bring us this far to let us die in the desert now. You know what? He didn't bring Jacob to this place that Esau could just kill him, snuff him out. You know, the lesson here for us is that all of our schemings, all of our plans, you know what? They're not necessary. Prayer is the major weapon of our warfare, along with faith in a loving, all-powerful God. Our efforts in the flesh, they actually serve to reveal what we believe about God. I need to make things happen because I don't believe God can help or I don't think that he, he uh, can or is willing to help, you know, in my time of need. And, of course, that's not true. That's not true. We need to understand that nothing is the same after we pray as it was before we pray. Prayer changes things. It always does. People who trust the Lord and pray for his intervention and trust him for it. They have the testimony of God working on their behalf and, and uh, turning things out in a way that, boy, they never would have expected. Verse 9, then Esau said, I have enough, brother. Keep what you have for yourself. God had promised to bless Esau, and he did. You know, his blessings are not listed for us, but if you think about it this way, he brings 400 men with him. Abraham, he was wildly blessed by the Lord. And if we can use him for a comparison, when he went to rescue Lot, he only had 380 men that were trained for warfare. And so if you use that comparison, yeah, Esau, he's blessed. God was faithful to him. And Esau said, I have enough. And it's so good to see that God had blessed him with enough and he's content. He's not striving or longing for more. You know what? Each one of us has exactly what the Lord knows that we need. And 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Having a relationship with the Lord and being satisfied with the things that he's given us, boy, that equates to just tremendous peace. Just tremendous peace. We have a God 
what more do we need? You know what? Like we sing, if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, it says in 1 Corinthians 3, 22, that, you know what? All things are ours in Christ Jesus. Well, I think it's worth noting, take a look back at, at verse 5. Jacob calls himself Esau's servant. And in, in verse 8, he calls Esau his Lord. And even though Jacob works so hard in his flesh to get to be Lord over Esau, he lied to his dad, you know, that he could get that blessing to be his brother's master, uh, Genesis 27, 29. And you see how Esau refers to Jacob? He just refers to him as brother. You know, it's actually beautiful, I think. The things we work for in the flesh are so very temporary. Nothing worked out as Jacob imagined it, but God had a plan to bless Jacob. And had Jacob just trusted and waited on the Lord, waited on God's plan, he would have been able to skip 20 years of hardship and difficulty. When we take matters into our own hands instead of resting and trusting the Lord, we put into motion things that, you know what, we're just going to have to Endure and, and, and endure them needlessly. God has a better way. You know, doing things in our own strength, it's always the harder way. And Esau says, I have enough, my brother. How great that is to hear Esau call Jacob his brother. There's no doubt that Esau disowned Jacob as his brother and had vowed to kill him. And now he calls him his brother and he embraces him. And he weeps, he kisses him. I mean, that is just how effective prayer is. And in verse 10, it says, And Jacob said, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face, as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Jacob, he presses Esau to take the present. And the Hebrew word translated present here, it comes from another word, which means to bless. And scholars believe because this word is used here, they believe that Jacob is trying to share that blessing with Esau that he had stolen, um, trying to make amends for his actions of 20 years ago. Giving and receiving gifts is always a sign of goodwill. People in those days would never receive a gift from their enemy. And you know what? The same is true today in that it's not until we receive the free gift of salvation does God accept anything from us. There's no service, there's no sacrifice that will please the Lord until we first uh, receive from Him His love that He gives us freely, demonstrated by his, his Son's sacrifice on the cross. It doesn't matter how great our gift is, you know, we give a million dollars to the church. We give a billion dollars to the church. You know, it doesn't matter what the value is because it's of no value to God until we receive Christ as our Savior and we give Him our lives. After we receive Christ, then we can offer ourselves to the Father and then our lives can be a blessing to Him. And when Jacob refers to seeing the face of God, I think he's referring back to when he saw God back in Peniel. Remember back in 32, chapter 32, after wrestling with the Lord, he says, for I've seen the face of God and my life is, is uh, preserved. I think now he's saying, 
in the same way I saw God and my life uh, was preserved, so too I see you, Esau, and my life is being spared. Jacob should have died in each one of these encounters, but it was God that was intervening, and it was God that was sparing Jacob. In verse 11, he says, Please, please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with graciously with me, and because I have enough. So he urged uh, Esau, and he took it. And I think what we see uh, Joseph doing here, he's insisting on, on Esau taking his gift, because Jacob knows in his heart he needs to make restitution. He knew that he had wronged Esau, and he needed to make things right. He knew he had deceived his dad, um, Isaac, and he stole the blessing from his elder brother uh, Esau. So Jacob, he urges Esau to take this gift. He says, no, Esau, please, please, you need to take it. Now, making restitution is actually a genuine sign of God breaking us of our old nature and working in our hearts and lives. When you, when you know that you've wronged someone, what you need to do is you need to, to make it right with them you need to go and make it right. And again, that's a sign of God working in our lives. Flip over to Luke chapter 19, will you? Luke chapter 19, because this actually reminds me of the story of Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19. Then Jesus entered, verse 1, Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was short stature. He was so short he couldn't see over, over the people. So he ran ahead, ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste, he came down and received him joyfully. But when, he, uh, when they saw it, when the religious leaders saw it, they complained, saying, he's gone in to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he's also a son of Abraham. You know, it's crazy because it just shows you just that genuine work that God was doing in Zacchaeus' life where he was willing to make restitution to restore fourfold to anyone he had wronged. It was a genuine work that occurred in Zacchaeus' heart. He was a different man after this event. And the sign of that change was making restitution to those he, he had wronged. And that's what we see Jacob doing here. Esau is, is receiving that gift, and that also is just as important as Jacob giving the gift, offering the gift. Again, because you don't receive a gift from an enemy. Receiving that gift is a sign of friendship 
with that person. Receiving that gift was, was saying that you were at peace with that person. And that's what Esau now is desiring to communicate to Jacob. Verse 12, then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go and I'll go before you. Esau wants to go before Jacob as a protection to him now. Man, talk about a change, huh? He goes from, I want to kill this guy to I want to protect this guy. And again, we see a genuine work in Esau's heart. No longer does he want to kill Jacob. He wants to protect him. It's a, it's a complete 180 degree uh, you know, change in the way he once was. And Jacob is happy to put the issues that he and Esau uh, have had. He's happy to put them behind him. But I think Jacob is really still pretty unsure of Esau, I think. Instead of Jacob, though, acting like Israel, he reverts back to acting like Jacob. Instead of telling Esau that God had called him to return to the promised land, called him to return to the land of his fathers, to Bethel, he makes an excuse. He says in verse 13, but Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord go on uh, ahead before his servant, and I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go uh, which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord and seer. So twice Jacob he mentions the kids, and as you remember, Jacob. He was fleeing as hard and as fast as he could from Laban. And no doubt as a result of trying to run away so fast, you know, now the kids, they're just worn out, they're weary, and that's a concern to him. And I tell you, men, this is a good principle for us to remember. As, as leaders of our families, as, as men and leaders within the church, this is something for us to be mindful of always. Jacob exercised concern for his wife and for his children and for the flocks. He doesn't want to drive them harder or faster than they're able to go. You know, he wants to lead them. He wants to be out in front of them, but at a pace that they can follow, a pace his family can endure. And it's something that we need to remember as men, that we should only go as fast as our families can endure. Verse 15, and Esau said, now let me, leave, uh, that you, uh, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor uh, in the sight of my Lord. And I think Jacob, he's very happy again to be reconciled with Esau. But I don't think that uh, his intentions are going to meet him in Sur or Seir. Uh, the reasons I think that is because Esau, he's going to travel south to Seir. And uh, Jacob, he's going to go northwest to uh, Succoth. And we're going to see that real soon. I think Jacob is still a little bit afraid of Esau. And I think we need to understand and not to be too hard on Jacob here. Because each of us, we've been saved. Each of us have uh, been through dark nights of the soul where we've wrestled with God. And I can say for myself, I can't speak for anyone else, but I can say for myself, I'm not the man that I used to be, but I'm not the man that I want to be either. You know, things, 
there are things that are in my heart. There are deep-seated things in my nature, um, you know, things that are in my character. That, that, you know, the Lord is still lovingly, patiently, graciously working out of me, you know. And in light of those things, and again, I'm just talking in regards to myself. If it applies to you, uh, you know, take it for what, it, what it's worth. You know, let the Lord minister to you. But there are things that I'm praying about, asking the Lord to just remove, remove from my life, Lord. Lord, I know that those things aren't pleasing to you. Give me strength to just overcome those things. Give me victory to put those things behind me. And I'm asking the Lord to consume me. You know, people are afraid. You know, the Bible says the Lord's a consuming fire. Boy, I want to be consumed by the Lord. I want everything about me to be consumed by the Lord. And I want the chaff to be, you know, burned away, the chaff that's in my life. And you know what? I'm a work in progress. And I struggle at times with the old nature, saying I'm going to do something or I'm going to be someplace, and you know what? I don't follow through. And honestly, there sometimes, you know what I'm talking about, is there are sudden situations they come up. They're right there in your face. They come up, and you know, those. It, at times they, they tempt me to tell something other than the truth. You know what? There's like a situation, and you know, sometimes, you know, I'm tempted to leave out some details to tell the story so I look better, you know, to embellish the truth a little bit. Sometimes, you know, to just tell a straight-up lie. The temptation is there. You know, and I, and I don't want to be too hard on Jacob here because I see in my own life that I'm still struggling with different issues. You know, I'm not excusing his actions. I'm not, certainly not excusing my actions. But I want to be gracious and loving in regards to other people's shortcomings so that I might receive grace and love and mercy in regards to my shortcomings. It's true that Jacob, he's failing here. But don't we all fail? And again, it's not an excuse. I mean, we all, I'll speak for myself again. I can be such a slow learner. Ask Tina. She'll tell you. Yeah, he's not so bright sometimes. It's true. I'm just a slow learner. The Lord is wrestling with me still. And the Lord, you know, he's, he's breaking me in different areas, different paces. And yet still, you know, we struggle after all of that. We're all failing. We're all weak and slow in our growth. And I can't look at Jacob and be critical of him because I need to extend him some grace. He's growing. I'm growing. The Lord's working in his life. The Lord's working in my life. He's working in your life. And I think that sometimes we can be too hard on others. Sometimes I think what we can do is we can be demanding too much of other people while excusing our own shortcomings. And it's a, it's a failure. It's a flaw in us. It's an unattractive aspect of who we can be. We can even be too demanding on our kids. You know what? Uh, they're being or they have been raised up in a Christian home, and yet we don't offer our kids. I, I know with me, oftentimes, you know, I, I just kind of, don't give them enough time to grow themselves. You know, I expect that they would be where I am at in my walk with the Lord, but I've been walking with the Lord for 42 years. 
you know, and, and I need to give them space for God to work patiently in their hearts and lives, you know. And I confess to you tonight, I'm a lot like Jacob. And I, I tell you, you know, I don't like it about me. I don't like it about me. And praise the Lord, he's patiently working. And when I fail, he picks me up and he brushes me off. And he says, let's go, my son. Let's go forward. You know, I, can, I confess that that's true about me. He said he would meet Esau. Jacob said he would meet Esau and Seir, but he never makes it there for whatever reason. Jacob's yes is not yes. And verse 15 says, And Esau said, Now let me leave with you some of uh, the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Succoth means booths. You know, talk about being slow to learn, though. Again, I don't want to be too hard on him, but let's just be honest, right? He's a slow learner. Even though he did not go to Seir, and, and maybe he did, and we just don't have a record of it, but we see him failing here again because God commanded Jacob to return to the land of his fathers. That's Genesis 31.3. If you flip over there, you'll see Genesis 31.3. It says, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. It's a clear command. That's what started this whole trip in the first place. And what you see here is Jacob just flat out disobeys the Lord. Succoth is still outside of the promised land. It's on the other side of the Jordan River. He stops short of his destination. He stops in Succoth, and it seems that he intends to stay there a while because he builds himself a house. You know what? We're building a house. Well, we're not, but we're buying a house that's being built. We intend to stay here a while. And God told him to go back to the land, to go back to his father and his family, and he stops and he builds himself a house. And we don't know how long he was here in this area, but some scholars believe it's eight to ten years. Eight to ten years. We don't know exactly how long he stayed there, but in the next chapter, we're going to see Dinah. She's a teenager. Verse 18, Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he had come from Padanaram, and he pitched his tent before the city. So after living, leaving Succoth, he comes to Shechem. At least now he's finally in the promised land. Again, we're not so, so sure how long he delayed it from entering the promised land, but he's still not where he's supposed to be. Verse 19 says, And he bought the parcel of land where he pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. It's obvious that Jacob is not in a hurry to obey the Lord and return to the land of his fathers. And this delay is going to cost him dearly. In the next chapter, we're going to see his daughter Dinah. She's going to be raped. And two of his boys are going to commit murder. You know, disobedience always, disobedience always equals missed blessings. But it also opens the door for disaster to enter into our lives. It's so much better to obey. 
Psalm 32, 8 through 10, one of my favorite psalms. You guys know it. The Lord says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. For that to happen, something has to happen first. For God to guide us with his eyes, something has to happen first. What do you think it is? We got to be looking at him. We got to have our eyes on him so when he looks to us, we can see it. Our eyes need to be fixed on him so he can guide us with his eyes. Verse 9 says, Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, or else they'll not come near you. He's, God doesn't want us to be like the horse, that as soon as the gate is open, boom, they're gone. Woke Dennis up. <laughs> he should have saw him. <laughs> boom, they're gone. Doesn't work twice. But he doesn't want us to be like a mule either where we're just stubborn. We dig in our heels, you know, we sit down. We're not going, you know, we're not going where he wants to lead us. That's not God's heart for us. He says that he doesn't want, he says, uh, don't be like them. He doesn't want to be like them where he needs to use the painful processes of life to get us where he wants us to be, you know? And that's what the bit and bridle is all about. Now, I'm not a horse guy, but I'm told what the bit does is it digs into the gums of the mouth of the horse. It causes some discomfort. And then the bridle, you know, tugs his head. And the two of them, you know, is how the horse is directed. And the Lord says, don't be like that. I have something better for you. I just want to connect with your eyes and just like, have you ever been in a, a room full of people? Maybe you see some friend across the room and you just like, you know, you know exactly what he's want. Or you see your wife and she's like, <laughs> you know exactly what she wants, you know. Let's go. Verse 10, it says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. God is not interested in using the painful measures in life to get us where he wants us to be. He loves us enough, though, to use them if we insist upon them. He would much rather that we would trust in him, be obedient to him, so that he could surround us with mercy. The NIV translates it, the Lord, to surround us, the, Lord, the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts him, in him. That's what the NIV says. ESV says the Lord's steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Boy, that's what I want surrounded in me, huh? Just God's love, his favor. Verse 20, Then he, Jacob, erected an altar there and called it El Eloi Israel. He calls this, this altar El Eloi Israel, which means God, which means God, the God of Israel. And remember, God, again, has changed his name to Israel, so he calls this uh, altar after the name of his God. He's the God of Israel. And Jacob should be commended for building this altar as a public witness to the people of the area. It's a public witness of his relationship. And this altar would certainly be uh, something that these people had never seen. They'd never seen uh, somebody uh, worshiping the God of heaven and earth. They would certainly take note of it. But what he should have done was to 
continued to go his, to his father's house, which was in Beersheba, just another 80 miles away. Now he pitches his tent in, in the city of Shechem. And he lives there for some time. We don't know how long, but it's a tragic situation. It causes me to think of someone else who pitched their place someplace, pitched their tent someplace they shouldn't have. It makes you think of Lot and the tragic mistake that Lot made when he pitched his tent towards Sodom. After living near Sodom, the result was that he ends up losing his children. He ends up losing his wife. It was just a horrible decision to just be there. You know what? He thought it was a good place to make a buck. He thought it was a good place to raise sheep. It was well-watered land, but he failed to think if it was a good place to raise his children. Lot, like I said, lost his daughters, lost his wife as a result. And Jacob probably makes this decision to pitch his tent near Shechem for the same reason, because later we're going to read that there's a lot of sheep and a lot of cattle there. You know, it's probably a good place to raise livestock. It's probably a good place to do business. It's probably a great business decision to stop there and raise sheep, but it's a horrible decision for his family. And Jacob builds this altar, but God, what he desires is obedience, uh, not sacrifice. First Samuel 15, 22, Samuel says to Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? But to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed uh, than the fat of rams. And the lesson here is so very strong that we need to take it to heart. Disobedience brings terrible consequences into our lives. And it doesn't matter the sacrifice that, you're, that you make to God. You know, our, our sacrifice of service to God or our sacrifice of praise to God. It's nothing to the Lord apart from obedience. It's meaningless. Being in the place where he can bless us through obedience, that's what's important to him. Safety and security is only found in obedience to the Lord. And the altar speaks of worship. And what it says is that we can be worshiping the Lord when there's disobedience in our life. We can be worshiping and studying his word uh, here tonight while there's disobedience going on in our heart. You can have daily devotions, but you know what? Your heart isn't devoted to the Lord. The Lord wants our obedience. He wants our heart. He wants it more than worship without it. It's such a warning to us. Jacob is going to pay a high price for this obedience, and God would spare him if only Jacob would have been obedient. It would be well for us, and it would please the Lord if we would just trust and obey. I thought about that old song, trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey, you know. What a, what a neat song that is. So let's stop there tonight. Let's close our Bibles. Such a sobering chapter to me. This was a hard chapter for me because, you know, it's, it's so great to see how prayer changes things, how powerful prayer is. That's a tremendous encouragement. But to see failure after failure, misblessing after misblessing, I mean, it's just been so heavy on my heart today. Let's pray. Father God, we just, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement found in your word. 
And Lord, help us. Help us, Lord. Help us to grow in our knowledge of your grace. Help us to be people that are thankful, people that are remembering the goodness that you've bestowed upon us, the great things you've done for us. Lord, we just want to give you our lives afresh, Lord. I can't speak for anybody else. I want to give you my life afresh. And I'm sure my brothers and sisters want to do the same. Lord, reveal to us those things that aren't pleasing to you. And Lord, give us victory over them. Lord, use us for your glory to be a witness to other people in a way that you can bless, Lord, with obedient hearts. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.